The following show has a lot of explicit content. I'm sure you'll like it because of that. It's Friday, March 2nd, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca, and I am not trying to get top-level security clearance for my children. This was a typically false news story. Okay, when I say I, I don't mean me. I speak in the third-person executive. Donald Trump tweeted that. And he tweeted that November 16th, 2016, scoffing at the reports that perhaps a member of his immediate family would get top level security clearance. And the more we know about Jared Kushner and learn about what's happened to him, the more we once again learn how correct Donald Trump truly was. So to just recap what's gone on today, NBC News is reporting that Mueller is looking at loans Jared Kushner got, meetings he took, meetings he took with the Russians. Mike Flynn is talking to Mueller about meetings that that he and maybe Kushner took with the Russians. Kushner is the high-level campaign staffer referenced in the Flynn indictment. Now, as far as Turkey, Flynn met with Erdogan's son-in-law, so that means he met with the Turkish Jared Kushner. Now, let's go back to that famous tweet where Trump denied these scurrilous reports that he'd ever try to get a security clearance. Remember, I'm not trying to get a top-level security clearance for my children. This was a typically false news story. Let's count the number of ways this was true. One, maybe he wasn't trying. Maybe it just happened. Good things happened to the guy. Two, for my children. Not technically a child, but a child-in-law. Three, he ends with, this was a typically false news story. And is typical for Trump's description of a false news story, the typical characteristic of such a story is that it is true. So he nailed that one too. But the big thing is this. It is Trump's belief that anything that he says that eventually comes true actually is true. This is from Time Magazine's cover essay, Truth is Dead. Trump also claimed credit for things he said that were factually incorrect at the time, but for which he later found evidence. At a February rally in a discussion about problems caused by new migrants in Europe, he said, look at what's happening last night in Sweden. Nothing had happened the prior night in Sweden, prompting diplomatic protests from Stockholm. But days later, there was a riot, which, to the president's way of thinking, made him a truth teller. Quote, I was right about that, he told Time magazine. And Time magazine goes on to say that truth, in other words, takes time to ripen as does apparently the special prosecutor's case into key figures in the Trump campaign. On today's show, it's an antan twig. But first, it's an octopus, an incisive investigation into our cephalopodic friends. They were once seen as scary beasts of the deep. Now they're darlings of the DVD, or whatever service you get your Sir David Attenborough-narrated nature docs on. Oh, how the worm has turned, Mr. Octopus. It is time for a reckoning. A reckoning brought to you by Slate. Some people get into journalism to uh, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Others get into journalism to speak truth to power. But my next guest, Daniel Engber of Slate, got into journalism, apparently for a more noble reason than all of that, to tear octopuses a new asshole. 
fact, not one new asshole, a new asshole for all of them. Dan Engber has written about the very, very occurrent cephalopod who he says is extremely overrated. Hello, Dan. How are you? I'm good. You know, I've also written about uh, squids and yeah. assholes. Yeah, really? What did yeah. you, you write about them? The question of uh, whether calamari as served in American restaurants is really pig rectum. Oh, yeah. That was a rumor, but that's not true. No, it's not true. No, it's not true. I myself have been known to sing the praises of octopuses, and it's not octopi, right? It's octopuses. Octopus, yeah. something mm-hmm. with like declension and Latin verbs. Mm-hmm. Anyway. I have sung the praises, but that's only because I guess I've been hoodwinked by this uh, octopus media surge. What are some of the what were some of the claims, the pro octopus claims that got you going? I mean, they're just all over the place. Anytime you bring up the octopus, people want to tell you about all their favorite octopus anecdotes. Did you hear about this one who escaped from the aquarium? Did you hear about that one who, you know, climbed into a tea kettle or this one that was predicting the outcome of World Cup soccer games. That's right. This one that negotiated steel tariff policy. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so let's go in order. The one that predicted soccer games, I mean, that's just stupid. It was just stupid and random, right? I don't even think the people who write actual books on octopuses thought that that one was smart. That was just a gimmick. Right. Still, Paul Paul gets around. He's mentioned in a lot of yeah. these stories. Yeah. But true, that's, a, that's just a, a dopey one. But the one, the escape, the Houdini octopus... That's from a New Zealand aquarium, and I want to credit you for blowing the cover off that story. What happened there? That's the story of Inky. Inky became a worldwide celebrity in 2016 when he allegedly pushed the heavy lid off the top of his tank, crawled down onto the floor, across the floor, up into like a ventilation duct. So he lifted himself up. I think he, you know, suckered himself uh-huh, up uh-huh. and uh, and traveled 150 feet to where this let out into the ocean and yeah. escaped. And this story was just a little news story in New Zealand, and it was everywhere. It was on, like, you know, Good Morning America and, and always told in the same way, like, oh, I, aren't we all just like Inky? Well, we like we like escape stories. We like when those two dangerous criminals in New York who killed people escaped. We were kind of half rooting for them. So if you have an octopus and it's in New Zealand, so it's no threat to us, we feel pretty pretty good about it. But what was wrong with the story? Well, so a week later, another story surfaced in New Zealand. An anonymous source with inside knowledge of the aquarium. Uh, Deep tentacle. Yeah, told a New Zealand news program that that was all a lie, that Inky was dead. So they went back to the uh, aquarium manager who had started this whole thing, and they said, you know, what's the deal? We hear Inky was dead. And he was like, well, Inky 1 was dead. (laughs) I never said Inky. I never specified the numeral for the Inky that escaped. That was Inky 2, the Inky that replaced the original Inky. Although, if you actually go— kings of England or popes? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've actually worked at a zoo, and I know that when the animals die, the zoo doesn't— uh, always reveal that to the public. Sometimes they just swap in a new bald eagle or whatever. Into but do the... they invent resurrection stories that <laughs> the world? Oh, so so what you're saying is it's not necessarily zoo malpractice to have invented this story? To say, oh, this animal died, sweep out its body, put in a new one and say, now this is Inky Kids. Yeah. However, when the query manager in New Zealand did initially give the story to the press, he referred to this Inky as having arrived at the aquarium in 2014, and he later admitted that Inky was dead. So he lied. Yeah. I think we. I, I think I'm on on safe legal ground to say he lied. Yeah, 
I think you've discredited the expert witness pretty well. But what about the jars? And what about the fact that, or the alleged fact that they could distinguish between different letters and colored balls? Are they really that smart? Well, I mean, a bee can distinguish between different colored flowers. Like, it's not that hard to distinguish. It, to distinguish between a W and a V is is easy until you have to actually spell out words with Ws and Vs. Right. Um, I mean, the Romans couldn't do it right. You ever see their buildings? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's true. I mean, the, uh, there are videos. I mean, one of the claims I make in my piece is that the octopus is, is very well adapted to the internet. And one of the reasons is it's just so perfect for, you know, short little videos that can be shared. It can do a lot of crazy shit. Like it can open a jar. Now, is that because it's really smart or because it has the anatomy that allows it to open the jar or some combination of those two things? I don't know. But in any case, I've seen videos of octopuses opening jars and doing other crazy stuff. Vampire squids turning themselves inside out. Octopuses, um, you know, hiding inside of coconut shells. You know, this whole thing started for me with this Blue Planet 2 episode that just aired a few weeks ago where an octopus does some amazing things to get away from a shark. And that was amazing, to its credit. But yeah. also, you know, very well motivated. It's not like... <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean... It's it, instinctive. One of the things, it, it sucks up shell, all these seashells on the on the floor of the ocean, and just rolls up and becomes like a ball of shells, and yeah. the shark gets confused. That's yeah. cool. And you actually stopped eating at octopuses? Yeah, I... Uh, I feel like in the reaction to my story, this stuff about dietary restrictions has kind of taken over more than I wanted to. But after working in the zoo and then working in a science lab, I stopped eating mammals. That was my own dietary restriction. And then at a certain point, I added octopuses and then I added all cephalopods, in part because I was amazed by them and I bought into um, the big octopus storyline. The fact that England named them honorary vertebrates, that's kind of stupid. Yeah, well, that that really annoyed me. <laughs> um, this I, is a, like pro-science organization. It just makes no sense. The UK added not octopuses, not cephalopods. They added one species of the octopus. It was like, we cover all vertebrate species plus this guy. <laughs> wow. Plus Ma- Paul, plus Inky, <laughs> plus Inky too. <laughs> Maybe it was funding. I don't know. Maybe they have a good lobbying group. Well, I think there was a, you know, there were, there were some very interesting studies that came out in the early 90s about octopus intelligence, social learning in the octopus, octopus personality. There was really good work that was happening on the octopus at that time. And I think, you know, enough of those things got covered enough and were, you know, became well known that people started to care about the octopus. Doesn't it say just everything about us as a species, as a culture, that when we elevate an animal, It's because of things like their personality. Let's examine that word and concept, their personality. Mm -hmm. So the more we see them do something like what we do, the more we think they're worthy of not being eaten. That seems a just dumb, dumb criteria. This I know. So it appeals in the sense that we can anthropomorphize it. There's here's Paul the octopus. Here's Inky. Look, oh, they're so mischievous. They're squirting water out of the tank. Oh, this this octopus loves me. This octopus hates me. Okay, so fine. That makes us like them. But then on the other hand, all the people who are kind of like goody goody science minded, you know, uh, people with respect for the uh, diversity of the animal kingdom, right. can say, no, 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 no. The reason I like the octopus is because it's so different from us. It's so 
alien. And so the, the phrase that you see most often associated with the octopus is that of an alien intelligence. So we're having it both ways. We both love its intelligence, which is almost always defined in human terms, and we love its alienness. And then we talk about how we can never really quite understand its intelligence because it's so alien. But then it's a cool alien as opposed to like the crappy you know, dumb aliens that you yeah. might find in the bottom of the ocean and, you know, in the deep sea trenches or whatever, because it's so smart and it can open up a screw top jar that we invented. Except the evil aliens, the actual image we have of them are often based on octopuses. Yeah, the Kraken. Like, there's a whole history of fear of the octopus and hatred of the octopus. And I think it's interesting that now we've flipped that around and we kind of love the octopus. The other uh, thing I've been mulling over is the way the octopus was just sort of a metaphor of the robber barons in the end of the 19th century, early 20th century. Yeah. Where, you know, octopuses were described referring to theater chains, the labor movement, political corruption. Everything bad was an octopus. Yeah, you're right. You wouldn't be a... Uh early 20th century, late 19th century political cartoonist worth his salt if you didn't have a giant octopus in your cartoon with every tentacle labeled some version of the farmer labor party that you didn't like. That's how you expressed it. Well, can I give you some uh, from the cutting room floor? This is some like some some Let's tracks that were never yeah. released. Yeah. So them. <laughs> from the early 20th century, there was an octopus of that era and it was the raccoon. And I'm obsessed with the, the analogy between the raccoon of the 1900s, early 1900s, and the octopus of the early 2000s. The so, raccoon was venerated and seen as the, smart? Yes. And, it was uh, seen in particular bandits. As, an, as an alien, mischievous intelligence. That, yeah. So this was the, the beginning of intelligence testing in you know psychology, academic psychology, and intelligence testing of that kind, and so some of the early experiments were done in in puzzle boxes where they put like a cat in a lock it in a box and figure out if it could get out. Well, guess what's really good at getting out of a box? A <laughs> raccoon. Yeah. So there's this brief window. This historian Michael Pettit wrote a wonderful paper on this topic. But there's this brief window before everyone's like, yeah, forget it. Let's just study rats and mice. Where. There was a push to say, you know what's the smartest, most interesting, wonderful animal? The raccoon. That's the best. Another thing, they also were constantly escaping and get, and their escapes were getting written up in the newspaper. There's a New York ah. Times article about Billy the raccoon's bender after he broke out of the Bronx Zoo. <laughs> I mean, it's just like Inky. Yeah. I see a similar thing maybe going on with crows. Mm -hmm. I think crows could be the next octopus. People always are going on about yes. the intelligence of crows. Mm -hmm. And never in the same way that they are seagulls. In fact, I was watching a gif called Octopus Drowns a Seagull. But if you are not looking at this through the octopus lens, what I was really seeing is seagull eats an octopus. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things that's funny about the, I don't know, funny is the right word, but one of the th things one might observe about the study of animal cognition is that it's very rarely done in a broad comparative way. And that's because octopus enthusiasts and cephalopod experts tend to study cognition in cephalopods. Yeah. There haven't been a lot of grand tournaments where, you know, where it's like, let's, here we are on Noah's Ark and we're doing, you know, we're, we're doing this one test on all these different animals. It has been done. Uh, there's one that I know of that was published. I talked to the guy who organized that. They had something like 36 different species. They had elephants, they had magpies, they had, you know, shrews and whatever, marmosets. And I said, why didn't you include an octopus in one of the brackets here? And he tried. He got in touch with some octopus researchers, but they were never able to deliver any data. Mm -hmm. I don't know. They're too busy making up escape tales. Exactly. Fanciful stories of New Zealish freedom. 
I would like that. I think you could do a good TV show based on that. I don't know if it would be animated. There was a TV show called The Greatest Warrior where they pitted a samurai against a uh, you know Civil War cavalryman. I think it could be done with the animals, the smartest animals. A Jeopardy Tournament of Champion Bestiary Edition. Well, yeah, but one of the things, again, having it both ways, one of the things... Uh octopus lovers might tell you when you start talking this way like well let's set up let's let's go elephant versus octopus they'll say oh but you know what test are you going to give it that's so that's such an elephant centric test Mm -hmm. you know why would the octopus be able to i don't know what (laughs) the elephant could do if we have to design a special test for each animal i've just lost interest in the octopuses being so especially cool right right like the specially designed raccoon test okay obviously a test of an animal's intelligence is getting inside a locked garbage can that is everyone knows (laughs) that is the way that you judge a smart animal daniel engber has written for the pages of that august online publication slate just the definitive takedown of these uh, multi-tentacled beasts. It is called Against the Octopus. It's not a crafty, soulful genius. It's dinner. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. And now the spiel. You know, here in the Northeast, we are experiencing a nor'easter. I hadn't heard of this this phrase, the nor'easter, more than a few years ago. My only experience with nor'easter was, of course, the Billy Joel classic, Nor'easter Alexa. Which includes the phrase, Tell my wife I am trolling Atlantis. So on the one hand, Billy Joel is writing in the person of this a God-fearing, seafaring, simple man. A man who's literally worked his fingers to the bone. And yet, he unleashes this grandiose phrase, Tell my wife I am trolling Atlantis. Imagine if the guy, the narrator in this song, ever were to communicate to the woman who is his wife in the literal universe of this song. Imagine if he were to ever communicate in this way. You're drunk again, down at the bar with all your loser friends. No, no, no. I wasn't at the bar. I was trolling Atlantis. Will you get out of here and earn some money and catch some fish? Yes, I will, darling, for I am trolling Atlantis. At Atlantis, credible sources say mermen have a three-day-old fish smell. Hashtag, just being helpful. Listen, at Atlantis, if you're truly friends to the beasts of the deep, then why does King Neptune's feast at my local seafood shanty include a veritable halibut holocaust? Why? Get it, I was uh... As trolling Atlantis there. Anyway, we're not here to talk nor'easter. We're here to talk another wacky portmanteau-type word, antantwig. It's our name for a three-week period from the Old English for uh, 20 and 1, 21. So it maybe stands to reason that during an antantwig, our name for a 21-day period, we would get so much feedback about words about numbers. So yesterday I was talking about uh, Trump's infrastructure plan. Every word in that sentence is in quotes. 
And there was a study that came out that said that the $200 billion he wants to spend might wind up being only $20 billion spent. So I said, in other words, it wasn't halved, it was tenthed. To which Alan Kanukeyev wrote, on yesterday's show, when you're wondering if tenthed is a word... I think the original literal meaning of decimate would fit there. Adam Kessel said in yesterday's spiel, in lieu of tenthed, I would suggest decimated. And John Dougherty said the word for tenthed is decimated. And Gabriel Martin said the same thing. Here is the problem, guys. All guys. It's not. Decimated means reduced by a tenth, not reduced to a tenth. I got that one right, finally. And the only reason I mention that is, now I will tell you all the times I got it wrong. I said psoriasis. One does not get psoriasis of the liver. One gets cirrhosis of the liver. I said Halderman. I meant Haldeman. No Halderman. Ehrlichman and Haldeman were the guys who were advising Nixon. Sometimes I say words that some listeners find delight in or phrases. I use the phrase syphilitic narwhal to the delight of listener John Lindsay, who sent me a I guess the kids call it a video, a cartoon of this odd song. Narwhals, narwhals, swimming in the ocean, causing a commotion, because they are so awesome. Narwhals, narwhals. And then John Lindsay also wrote, you made an offhand comment about Norway. That convinces me you're doing all sorts of Weebles stuff deep cuts. Now that narwhal song is by a, an internet guy named Weebles Stuff. So is this song with a Norway reference. Got lions and tigers only in Kenya. Forget Norway, Kenya. It's funny how the mind finds connections where really it's just that Weeble stuff has a giant oeuvre. In other corrections, or quasi-corrections, I mentioned that uh, the second chief of staff during the Obama administration was Ed Rouse, or possibly Roos, Bill Anderson tweeted me at Pesca, M-I, Pesca me, tweeted me, just for the record, Obama's second chief of staff was Pete Roos, or maybe Pete Rouse, not Ed Roos, or maybe Ed Rouse. Although since there is no Ed Rouse, I can't mispronounce his name, but I still did. It's Ed Roos. But since my point was, I don't even remember the guy's name, I think my mistake just serves to make my point even better. And I got to say, I love it when that happens. And now as promised, a second mention of Oeuvre, the lobstar of the Antan Twig, the listener, the tweeter, the Facebook correspondent who gets the award for the best listener. So many to choose from this period, this Antan Twig. But Mark Nash, who I know is Mark Nash because his Twitter hashtag is I am Mark Nash, writes, the way Mike says Oeuvre is both delightful and frightening, which is exactly what I'm going for. I wasn't sure exactly how to say oeuvre. I know that there are a bunch of vowels in a row, O-E-U. When does that ever happen in English? So I talked to Pierre Bienname, who is my Francophone producer, and he said, no, no, it's more like something like oeuvre. Like, wait, say that again? And he said, oeuvre. And I said, wait, say it again? And he looked up to me and said, oeuvre. I'm like, okay, now I know how to pronounce it. So by the way, how do you say egg? And he said, oeuvre. And I said, how? And he said, and he started making subsequently smaller and smaller noises with a vague F sound at the end. And I say, well, what if someone's métier, which is probably spelled wrong, is making omelets? They're just really good with eggs. Their oeuvre is oeufs. 
And Pierre looked at me and said, you're an insult to the French people. And that is true. But Pierre, you are not the lobster of the Antan Twig. Mark Nash, hashtag, at sign, I am Mark Nash. You are the lobster, and this is your... And that's it for today's show. Just producer Pierre Bienname has experienced a Northwester, which is a weather system with high SAT scores, but a poor performance in the Big Ten. Mary Wilson, just senior producer, no stranger to the Southeaster, which is when all the family gathers and wears pink or floral colors and eats ham and puts on their fanciful bonnets and finery and watches them all blow away because of the weather. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. This is a guy who's worried about the Southwester, which is like the Jet Bluer, but it has no in-flight TV. The gist, there is no island left for islanders like me. Oomperu depru dupru, and thanks for listening. So I just want you to know, Mary, that uh, this is one of the few times in the last few months where I've seen Mr. Engber in a non-tank top situation. (laughs) (laughs) We see each other at the gym and he's given to the tank toppery. Yeah. That's that's my look. Tank top. (laughs) That's his look. The uh, Rambus headband. (laughs) That's right.